On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news in the ASC industry, review requirements for patients to go home with a responsible adult, discuss HIPAA issues related to AI assistance like Siri and Alexa, we'll review recent discussions related to site-neutral payments, and in our focus segment, we'll discuss payment cycle controls and fraud and abuse with Alex Parada of Trivalence. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We'd like to thank our sponsor of this episode, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. For more information about Trivalence, visit their website at trivalence.com. That's T-R-I-V-A-L-E-N-C-E.com. Welcome to episode 198 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for September 14th, 2023. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York, this is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it's important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines that are issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we are recording the week after uh, we finished our semi-annual retreat with Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Mm -hmm. uh, had a lot of fun getting all of our employees together. We have about 24 now uh, on our, our team, and uh, it was great to have them all here. Uh, they were in our other studio, which we also call conference room, and uh, we uh, didn't have everybody in play in, mm -hmm. in person, so we had people that were joining us remotely. And so we had a great time uh, uh, recording. We always record an episode, uh, you know, some interviews with all of our staff when we bring them together. Uh, but this one was particularly special because we recorded uh, the interviews that are going to be presented for our 200th uh, episode, which is coming mm -hmm. up pretty soon. So we're very excited about that. I'm going to be heading off to Ohio next week for the state association there. I'm not speaking there this year, but we will have a, a booth and we will uh, be recording interviews with some mm -hmm. of the other speakers uh, at the conference. And <laughs> we had a survey at one of our clients today. The surveyor showed up. Much earlier than they were expected, so just kind of a heads up out there. I guess they're getting caught up. And yeah, we are. Uh, we're recording. Uh, what is today? September fourteenth, mm -hmm. and the surveyors showed up today 
Uh, and yet the expiration for that deemed status survey is not until the end of uh, November. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the earliest. We've been seeing this happen periodically. And they I, really, they just got the letter uh, last week, I think it was, or maybe two weeks ago, indicating that the, the survey had been scheduled. It's a deemed status, so it was an unannounced survey. So just be prepared. I know a lot of people think, well, you know, it'll be a couple months before they show up. But that certainly wasn't the case here. So... You know, the client's fully ready for it and they're in good mm-hmm. shape, but mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, a bit of a surprise. Uh, we uh, we kind of thought we had a little bit more time before we uh, had to send a team out there. So that was kind of interesting. And Sue, uh, you've been doing a little bit of research and I've been doing a little bit of research on the possible impact on our industry of a government shutdown. As we are uh, recording this in uh, the middle of September, uh, there is a a danger of a government shutdown. So, uh, Sue, you and I spent a little bit of time looking at the, the possible mm-hmm. impact uh, for our surgery centers on that. Not, a, you know, every shutdown apparently is somewhat different, uh, but there's a, a couple things that we did uh, find out. And I got some of this information from, um, and I'll, I'll provide a link to this, uh, from an article from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And what they pointed out is for Social Security and Medicare, checks are going to be sent out, but benefit verification as well as card issuance would cease, meaning that, uh, you know, new Medicare uh, beneficiaries, you know, might not be able to present a card mm-hmm. uh, upon admission. And this is what they stated. While unlikely to happen again during the 1995-96 shutdown, more than 10,000 Medicare applicants were temporarily turned away every day of the shutdown. Uh, it could also impact, I, I was also particularly interested in what possible impact would be for our CMS regional offices. Yes. We work with them quite a bit, especially with um, you know, um, time-limited waivers, uh, you know, 855B applications on new starts, things like that. And unfortunately, they didn't give a very clear answer as to whether those regional offices would remain open. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I, I think if you are, uh, you know, expecting a time-limited waiver approval, which we've mentioned before, take forever to get approved. Um, or if you've got an application that you need to get in, get that in, you know, pretty quickly uh, just to make sure that as soon as the government is back to running again, the 855B will be uh, up and running. So I'll give a link to that. And, uh, you know, we'll keep an eye on this. If we get any more information, we'll update you on that. So during the um, uh, business office manager boot camp, which mm-hmm. we did in August, uh, an interesting issue came up. I think it might have been because my my uh, my watch went off at one point. Uh, but I and, don't know the answer to this, John, <laughs> or right. something, whatever, Siri or Carton, whatever it was. Yeah, and, and Christina Benton and I talked a little bit about it. And, and what we uh, realized is that, and, and then we did a little bit of research on this, is that there really is a danger from a HIPAA standpoint mm-hmm. of our devices, things like Alexa, uh, like Siri. Siri. I don't know what my watch is attached to, but it is a, mm-hmm. it's an Apple watch. Uh, but, you know, they're constantly listening and there is a, a danger there uh, with regard to uh, privacy, you know, uh, um, you know, protected health information. Mm-hmm. So, so you did a little bit of research uh, from Northeastern University, I believe, correct? Yep. I saw this, um, a study. First, I had seen there, there has been, I think, only one lawsuit that was brought by some healthcare workers with some concerns about this. I'm not sure that that really turned into anything, but I was curious whether this was a risk or not. And so I looked into a bit. So concern about smart speakers, such as, like you said, Alexa, Siri, Cortana, I think is one of the other ones, right. um, possibly overhearing and actually recording sensitive or protected information. So it's especially become more of an issue as some people are working from home. Um, and I know most nurses, doctors, they can't really work from home, but you might take phone calls, you might have Zoom meetings talking right. about incidents. Um, and these devices, 
all, of course, have have that wake word, they call it. But there was a study um, in Northeastern University and Imperial College of London that found there are frequent misactivations caused by words or a combination of words that might sound similar to the actual wake words. Like, I'm sorry would awaken, you know, the same as kind of, hey, Siri. Or Alexa could be, I messed up, I got something. So it doesn't have to be really similar sounding. It's not words you would necessarily yeah. pick out as being um, a wake word. Like, you you know, it's happened with you with your watch or different yeah. things. All of a sudden, these devices will start to talk, and, and you don't even know what you said to kind of wake them up. So this can happen several times a day. They they did a, a they played a whole lot of constant conversations and paid attention to how often they were mistakenly woken up. And um, some were almost once an hour, some were maybe once every couple hours, and they do result in a short recording of up to 10 seconds each. And these recordings um, are almost always sent up to the cloud rather than just being kept in the speaker. So it is possible that people could hear these um, whatever you know you were saying at that time. And, and again, this information that's being stored in the cloud is not uh, uh, confidential. I mean, it's be, mm -hmm. it could be reviewed by uh, you know the organizations such as Apple or Google or whoever yeah, has created those doing devices. It as, as like a marketing type of a thing or right. something like or that, just or making just to sure, try to right. see what you know what people are maybe asking for, or you know, because with the wake word, they want to know are we answering the questions right. that people are asking, but they may be mistakenly hearing these other things. Or if, I don't know if people can kind of break into these, you know, with like cyber attacks and right. that kind of thing. So it can be a concern. Um, the newer devices usually do have a mute button. And there was another study where they found that it does actually physically disconnect the speaker from the power supply. So if you do use a mute button, you, you should be pretty safe with that if you remember to do that. So I think the big takeaway here is, uh, you know, there is a concern about this. If you're mm -hmm. using these devices, if you're working from home and have sensitive data, you might want to turn them off. Mm -hmm. uh, probably not appropriate to be using, uh, you know, Alexa in a in a surgery no. center. Uh, and, you know, I might want to disable Siri on, on any of those devices mm -hmm. that are... Your phone, your watch. Right, you know, right. All of those things now. So, uh, and we'll uh, provide a link to uh, that particular article. And then, Sue, you had some information about Pain Awareness Month, mm -hmm. which is this yep. month. Yep, this month is Pain Awareness Month. So the American College of Surgeons put out a press release um, from September 6th that was titled, Three Tips for Man Managing Pain After Surgery. Um, Dr. Jonas Stahlberg is a member of the American College of Surgeons, Patient Education Committee, and the Vice Chair of Research for the Department of Surgery at UT Health in Houston. And he gave these tips for patients. Um, but it's just a good reminder, I think, for everybody being yeah. pain month. I thought I would just kind of go through them quickly. So have a plan and be prepared, understanding the expectations for pain after your procedure and how you should manage it, as well as when you need to call the physician. So these are important educational things. You know, always man managing expectations because sometimes there is going to be some pain. Right. And if people know that ahead of time, it, it may just be easier for them to handle and not be quite so scary. Um, and know what medications or other therapies to use for pain. Um, try using, they always recommend a non-opioid medication when possible and knowing, you know, that you can combine some of these, you know, you can do a Tylenol and an ibuprofen or, and, and just that schedule, make sure people understand that they could, you know, that can be a first line if, if you feel that that will be enough. Um, consider heat, ice, or other complementary therapies such as massage or acupuncture, exercise and re rehabilitation therapy, 
um, maybe review with the patients what movements will accelerate the healing if there's areas they should be stretching or moving and, and which areas maybe they shouldn't, you know, be moving at all and, and um, kind of keeping still and for how long. And when opioids are indicated, be extremely cautious. It, I think it's really important not to overwrite a prescription, make sure that they have just what they what you really think they're going to need, and then they can always call in for more if they have to. Use it only as directed and remind them to store and dispose of any of those, you know, any extras uh, properly. And be specific when you're talking about pain. You know, some pain you may just need to tolerate as a patient um, for a short time. So some questions that you may want to cover with the patient. Um, how limiting will the pain be? What if it hurts to breathe? You know, do I then call you? What if it hurts, but you're still able to do the daily tasks that you usually do? Is that just something you want to try to get through for a couple of days? And um, when will the patient be back to their normal functions? So those are just some some quick, easy ideas to make sure you're covering, managing those expectations. And the article also, which we can put the link to, um, it had a link to some good handouts, um, templates, and charts that patients can use to um, monitor their pain or to guide, you know, any questions they might have. And I do need to point out that, you know, the accreditation organizations do have specific accreditation standards related to pain management. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would expect or we expect uh, them to um, – uh, th those organizations to uh, to have policies that deal with pain and have tools that they would be working with the patients that are age appropriate. You know, we know that uh, young children, of course, can't uh, can verbalize a number, mm -hmm. but they can mm -hmm. uh, they can use a picture. So whatever whatever you have, make sure that uh, you uh, you have a good policy on that. That you have good training, evidence, and training of your staff on on how to manage pain. Mm -hmm. And that the anesthesiology associations. Um, also, we had some information on this, but that was more of a chronic pain thing. And I think it's, you know, any pain centers out there, you know, it's a good time to kind of, I don't know, reward your staff or just, right. you know, put out some information on your website or something like that about National Pain Month, Pain Awareness Month. Sue, when I was in uh, Illinois a couple weeks ago for uh, the state association meeting, uh, one of the attorneys was talking about uh, price transparency. Uh, and there's some new regulations in Illinois uh, that talk about price transparency. New York also has uh, some price transparency regulations coming up. Uh, it takes different forms, you know, having to publish information on a website, having to communicate with the patient prior to surgery exactly what the charges are going to be. Um, but it, it also brought up uh, an interesting conversation because all of these this price transparency is, you know, to make sure the patient is well aware of the different costs uh, of the different sites. Like, you know, is it going to cost me more to have the procedure done in a hospital compared to a surgery center or a physician's office? You know, so the government is looking for, you know, to really, uh, you know, first of all, uh, make sure the patients are fully aware of those price discrepancies. And then the long-term um, uh, uh, goal of CMS certainly is to move toward what we refer to as site-neutral payments. Mm -hmm. uh, what they mean by that is, well, site neutrality is the policy of having Medicare Part B, which is how uh, ASCs are paid, pay uh, the same amount for the same service with the same case mix regardless of where that service is being provided. So for example, we know that HOPDs are generally paid almost twice what ASCs are paid for the same procedure. So. Uh, and MedPAC has been, uh, you know, making this recommendation for quite a number of years that, you know, there really should be site neutrality here and that, uh, that uh, you know, patients shouldn't have to pay more to be in an, another environment. And this is picking up steam. 
in a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, former Louisiana Governor Bobby uh, uh, Jindal and the Center for Healthy America at the American First Policy Institute ad- advocated for site-neutral payment policies for outpatient care. Uh, and they were advocating for uh, the shift by explaining that it would save the Medicare program billions of dollars. Um, and, you know, I, 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 there were some numbers out there. I didn't quite want to quote them, but billions of dollars, you know, you, it, it, it can certainly add up. Uh, even though, you know, ASC payments are a relatively small portion of the, the Medicare budget, um, it's still, uh, you know, the more we move into the ASC setting uh, away from hospitals could significantly reduce the Medicare spend. Then there was an article in the American Hospital Association uh, website, and I'll provide a link to it. And uh, in this, there was a letter to the editor which was talking about site-neutral payment policies. And uh, the title was, Site-Neutral Payment Policies Fail to Account for the Site Differences. And in this letter, uh, which was published on August 1st, uh, the American Heart Association president and CEO, Rick Pollack, uh, responded to Bobby Jindal's and the Center for Health and Healthy America at the American First Policy Institute op-ed piece. So he's basically refuting what uh, what uh, uh, Jindal was talking about. And he said, so-called site-neutral policies fail to account for the differences between hospital outpatient departments or HOPDs and other sites of care. And Pollock wrote, um, HOPDs treat sicker, lower-income Medicare patients than those duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid with more complex and chronic conditions than those treated in an independent physician office or ambulatory surgery centers. HOPDs are also required to comply with many more regulatory and safety codes and provide 24-7 standby capacity for emergencies. It's, and, and his comment is, it's appropriate that they be provided with differential payments. And he went on to say that existing site-neutral payment policies have already hurt hospitals, and under current law, the vast majority of off-campus HOPDs that uh, weren't billing Medicare before November 2015 are already paid at a site-neutral rate. And we know that for a fact that new HOPDs that are going off that are not on the AS, uh, on the campus of the hospital um, are paid the same rate that the uh, NASC is. And then he, again, went on to continue uh, to say health insurers and private equity firms, not hospitals, are responsible for most of the acquisition of physicians during the past five years. As polling has shown, most physicians are choosing to become employed rather than to operate their own practices due to increased costs and burden from policies like commercial insurer and prior authorizations. So, you know, so I have a bit of a problem with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, again, I, I hate broad brush comments. Uh, I mean, I, I do recognize that hospitals do take care of sick patients, but to say that physicians' offices and ASCs don't treat, you know, yeah. sick patients or don't provide care to Medicare and Medicaid patients is really uh, quite misleading, uh, especially, you know, post-pandemic. We know that as a result of the pandemic and as a result of the shutdown there for a period of time, surgeons had no choice but to move cases into mm-hmm. the into the surgery center uh, and thus having to take on sicker patients at that point. Uh, and many of those doctors, once they realized how great a surgery center is, they, they didn't want to take them back to the hospital. And they also realized that they could, you know, that we could take care of it. And I think that's a trend that's going to continue, that we are going to continue to fi- find ourselves, uh, you know, really um, taking on sicker and sicker patients mm-hmm. here. So I think this article or this uh, argument that the, uh, the, uh, the you know, president and uh, CEO, Rick Pollack, uh, made is, you know, not, is a little misleading, let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't have a problem paying them more, but I think that there's got to be a limit. And, mm-hmm. and uh, 
you know, another comment that I really didn't like is that he said HOPDs are also required to comply with many more regulatory and safety codes. Well, that's not true at all. Yeah. You know, ASCs have uh, at least as, and in many cases, more restrictive regulations simply because when these laws were created, they wanted to protect the patient mm-hmm. against those surgery centers that might have, you know, tried to cut corners. So we all know, and many of you out there know, that indeed we have at least the same standards and props more. Mm-hmm. Where he is correct is that we don't have 24-7 standby capacity for emergencies, yeah. and that, that is certainly correct. So as I said, I don't have a problem with the differential. The question is whether they should get twice as much payment mm-hmm. as we do. And, and then a last comment I'd make is that, you know, also recognize that we, we have to be careful about fighting for this too much because – uh, the cost advantage is one of our best selling points. So if mm-hmm. we did go to site neutral payment, then we would, you know, we would get reimbursed the same that the hospital does, and we wouldn't be able to make that argument that we make to the government to the patients uh, that you know you're going to uh, save money by coming to a surgery center. If we're all getting paid the same amount, uh, then that argument, that cost advantage, is no longer there. And then we wanted to move on to some recent experiences. We've seen, I don't know if it's an increase, but a continuation of. Um, patients being discharged without a responsible adult. It does seem like it has gotten worse since the pandemic. And in certain areas, it's especially bad when people don't maybe have family or close friends around and they really have nobody to go home with them. But it is a requirement and, you know, it's just a, a huge safety issue. So we just wanted to address that and talk about the standard. Yeah, I, it's hard to tell whether there's been an increase in the number of this, but I've seen it coming up. Uh, there were was a discussion uh, in a recent uh, Ask a Connect, um, mm-hmm. um, what do you call it, the uh, Posting, yeah. um, and I was I was happy to see that all of the the responders did say that this is not a a choice. You know, you yeah. have to follow the standards. So let's, uh, as we always try to do, take it right back to the standards. So this is four sixteen point fifty two c, and the standard is for discharge. Go ahead, Sue. And it says the ASC must ensure all patients are discharged in the company of a responsible adult, except those patients exempted by the attending physician. And the interpretive guidelines for this particular section goes on to state that unless the physician who is responsible for the patient's care in the ASC has exempted the patient, the ASC may not discharge any patient who is not accompanied by a responsible adult who will go with the patient after discharge. ASCs would be well advised to develop policies that address what criteria a physician would consider or should consider when deciding a patient does not need to be discharged in the company of a responsible adult. Exemptions must be specific to individual patients, not blanket exemptions to a whole class of patients. And I think that's really important because even though you may have policies developed that will mention the type of criteria to look at, they can't just say, oh, all patients with this meeting this criteria, it has to be, as you said, that specific patient. Right, right. And and by the way, we also ran into a situation, didn't we, recently where um, a surgery center was actually, um, it, when a patient showed up and did not have a responsible mm-hmm. adult, the patient was asked by the surgery center to sign an AMA against yeah, medical advice. Completely Bef- wrong use of it. Right. Well, yeah. uh, before the before patient even, even went in. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the rule is if a patient, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't even have a patient come in if they are 
going to tell you that they're going to leave against medical advice. So mm-hmm. it, uh, that that could be. I mean, that was a really scary situation because it was yeah. very ill um, ill advised there and could really get into a lot of legal problems. So you know, certainly don't sign an AMA when a patient goes home. Uh, you know, with a uh, without a responsible adult. And as you said, Sue, this is becoming a problem. It's a big problem in a lot of our urban centers, yeah. um, where you know they're you know especially elderly patients might not have a responsible adult. They might live in a community or in a place where there's other people in the building, but they are not coming with the patient. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I truly understand and I truly respect that, uh, you know, we want to, uh, you want to accommodate these patients, that they need this care, that they, you know, it's not their fault that they don't have a responsible adult. Uh, and, you know, I understand how surgery centers and the doctors want to uh, accommodate these situations, but this is a significant safety issue. You know, a patient especially mm-hmm. that has, you know, had a significant amount of anesthesia, um, yeah. you know, even after a couple hours might not be fully uh, recovered from this. So we, we have to follow the rules here. Uh, and, and you as a surgery center have to enforce it and cancel the case that the patient doesn't have a responsible adult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can rely on accept those patients exempted for, uh, by the attending physician, but you have to have established protocols mm-hmm. that identify when uh, this would be applicable. And and remember that the interpretive guidelines specifically state exemptions must be specific to individual patients, not mm-hmm. blanket exemptions to a whole class of patients. Mm-hmm. And you do have to be careful because some patients will come in saying that they've got somebody yeah. to drive them home. And we've seen some centers that either ask to speak to that person, you know, right. let them have the phone number so they can call them if, if they haven't come into the center yet. Um, we've heard of a center that was transporting patients to the hospital by ambulance if they couldn't go home. But that's, you know, that's that, that may not be covered yeah. and the patient will be very upset. Yeah. But it's important that you make clear to them, you know, the, the seriousness of it and that you may have to cancel if they come in without somebody. Right. And and the doctor needs to understand that when they exempt those patients, they're going to have to write a note. You know, mm-hmm. there's no form that you should be filling out yeah. for this. you got to write a note that explains why that physician determined the patient was eligible. Be very mm-hmm. specific about that. Yeah. And, of course, have policies that that uh, that have been agreed upon by the medical staff uh, as to when, when you would be allowed to exempt them. Yep. And they are taking responsibility, as is the surgery center. Right. They're taking a lot of risk, I think, mm-hmm. uh, if, a, if a patient is harmed as a result. And, you know, we have 80 centers. You know, we have had injuries. We've had injuries with people even with a responsible adult, Mm -hmm. you know, where the patient has fallen, you know, between the surgery center and home, uh, you know, let alone what could happen if a patient uh, doesn't have a responsible Mm -hmm. adult. So, again, a, a hot topic right now. Surveyors are definitely looking for it. Uh, you know, we had a center that uh, had it, uh, not an immediate jeopardy, but did have a condition level citation uh, as a result of their failure to do that. And, you know, again, they were trying to do the right thing because they're in an urban area. You know, none of their patients ever, you know, came in in their own vehicle with, uh, uh, you know, it was all public transportation. So going home on public transportation without a responsible adult is, of course, dangerous, too. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's move into our uh, uh, second uh, segment here, just as a bit of an introduction. You know, we have been uh, focusing a little bit more recently on finance, uh, as some of our listeners have pointed out, that they, you know, our focus on uh, regulatory is good, uh, but they every once in a while want some uh, finance discussion. So uh, we uh, we talked to our uh, friends over at Trivalence, and uh, they agreed to talk a little bit about accounts payable. Uh, and, you know, we, we all are trying to find ways of saving money. And one way of doing that, of course, is to make sure everybody is really 
shopping well for you know the lowest price, which includes going to different sources, comparing those prices, and and of course doing this uh, in the environment where you're under a lot of pressure to uh, to do this quickly, and and of course that results in the possibility of uh, you know people placing orders for products that could have been cheaper, or you know doing things without a proper authority. You know if you're not careful about making sure that your employees know that the, you know that any purchase has to be approved by administration. Uh, you know you could run into situations where you've purchased or paid you know more for a product or purchased more of a product than you really need. Uh, you know, having controls is extremely critical in the accounts payable cycle, uh, and you know, just to assure that staff who order, uh, you know, are are not overbuying, as we said, uh, and controlling the pricing, making sure that you're always getting the best prices. So let's take a short break, and we're going to uh, have an interview with uh, Alex Parada over at Trivalence about this topic. Do you work long hours at your ASC, ordering from multiple vendors or managing back orders? Do you manually track POs and invoices? Do you need help sifting through paper to find payment discrepancies? Most ASCs are understaffed, overworked, and wear multiple hats, which leads to burnout. Trivalence launched an intuitive procurement to payment solution that optimizes your ASC's performance and removes the frustration from daily tasks, allowing for a happier, more productive staff. The Trivalence solution streamlines the disjointed supply chain in your busy surgery center. From ordering supplies, to managing your purchase orders and invoices, to making payments. The platform provides a robust dashboard with actionable reporting and lets you track your spending down to the penny. Visit trivalence.com to schedule a demo or learn more about this all-in-one solution. That's T-R-I-V-A-L-E-N-C-E dot com. So I'm here with Alex Parada. He is from uh, Trivalence, and Trivalence, as we all know, is one of our sponsors here. So Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, I've spent my entire career really focused on growth stage uh, companies, primarily with technology companies, um, anything from software in the music industry uh, to point of sale financial services for the restaurant industry. Um, and more recently, even a, a management services organization uh, that was managing orthodontic clinics and then sort of eventually made my way over to the trivalence team and back into the world of uh, technology um, and really just focus on building the finance function and just guiding the team through a, a finance lens as we continue to, to, to grow the team and build the product. So uh, what... Uh, when we were talking to uh, Trivalence about uh, what types of uh, discussions we could have, one of the points that I made is that we really haven't talked about internal controls in ambulatory surgery centers. You know, we all know, uh, as a former auditor and you're an accountant also, we all know that, um, you know, ambulatory surgery centers just don't have the resources that large organizations have to be able to implement strong internal controls, uh, which means that usually there has to be some type of uh, of accommodation for that, just to make sure that you know you don't have fraud uh, occur or or even errors in transactions. 
Um, and a big theme that we have had on the podcast in the last uh, six months, I would say, is how can technology help solve many of our operational challenges that we have? So that really fits into this whole conversation here. So let's just start, Alex, by talking about what what are internal controls and why do we have them in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you know, as a former auditor, uh, the different types of controls that are out there. But generally speaking, we think about controls, I, I think of them as, as, you know, kind of three main categories, right? You have your uh, preventative controls, your detective, and then sort of corrective. The name might partially describe exactly what they're meant for. But, you know, a preventive control is really meant to prevent that fraud or that error before it happens in the first place. So, Think of something like an approval on, ex, on an ex, uh, expense report or an invoice before it's paid, right? right? You can kind of catch an error or catch some fraud before it, uh, you actually release payment. Uh, then on the other side, you have detective controls, which are sort of backwards looking uh, in the sense that you want to detect fraud or an error after it's already happened. So, you know, the, the one I typically think about is looking at changes in financial reporting over time, like right? look at your fluctuations, like what doesn't intuitively make sense when you look at the last three, four months of you know history of, of costs or revenue or whatever it is, um, knowing the broader concepts or context of what's going on in the organization uh, or the larger macro environment, right? Like what doesn't kind of fit together? Um, and, and then the last is, of course, corrective, meaning, you know, what are you going to do to stop it from happening next time? Um, so, you know, th- this could be anything from like, you know, uh, maybe you've, you've found an employee who's committed some sort of fraud and we have to you know, terminate that employee or move on or implementing a new policy or a new procedure to prevent future fraud or, uh, you know, prevent future errors from happening. So those are broadly the way that I think of, of controls is kind of those three major categories. And, um, you know, there's, there's various ways, of course, they can be implemented, but. So well, let's talk for a second about the types of controls that generally uh, those preventive controls that are out there. You mentioned, you know, approval of uh, purchase orders. Let's just take that that extra step. That would include also making sure that, you know, when a product is received, there's a receiving document with a signature from the person receiving it. And then that next part of it, when it, the receiving document, the purchase signed purchase order, that all goes to the person who receives the invoices. And then they, they review the invoices, compare it to the purchase order, the amount quantity and price and make sure that the the same number of items that were ordered were actually received and that and that that the invoice uh reflects uh, you know proper information there and i i think i've i've said this on i don't know if i've said it on podcast but i've said it when i speak you know when i was an actual administrator doing like real work in in a surgery center and signing off on on checks i was shocked at how many invoices were incorrect and that if we had just paid them without double checking the uh, purchase order and the receiving document, we would be overpaying people, you know, or, or uh, organizations overcharging us, uh, you know, a fee that we didn't agree to or telling us that they had provided us like 10 widgets and we only got five. Um, you know, and those those are significant controls that you need to make sure are in place. Um, yeah. Something that's easily, you know, uh, put into place, even in a small organization, you can do that. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think there are certain things that are very easy to implement, right? Like I think folks might think of internal controls and immediately say, "Oh, that's just for a really large organization. Yeah. That's for 
you know, uh, you know, multi-site groups or folks that are, you know, uh, SEC filers, right? Like, like very large organizations, but there is a way to scale these down uh, in very simple context, right? You don't need the most robust internal controls for a, you know, single location, single, uh, you know, surgery center, right? But uh, you want to have something in place that's going to prevent, you know, to your point, uh, pricing error, a you know receipt error maybe there wasn't a proper three-way match right like there's simple things that you can sort of put in place to to prevent these errors from happening and you know there's uh lots of advances in technology of course um over years that that can help with these sorts of things and you know i think there's just there's just many ways to do a smaller scale internal control that's going to have a bigger bang for your buck than trying to just say i'm going to put in the largest most complex uh you know internal controls overall so actually, let's step back a second and talk about the prevalence of issues with regard to fraud in a surgery center. And uh, so this would be a very quick conversation because we don't have statistics on that. You know, first of all, you know, there's no, no national statistics out there. And not a lot of people want to admit to it happening. I will say, you know, at Amateur Healthcare Strategies among our 80 clients, we've had, you know, we're not involved in the finances. We do regulatory, but we've heard as part of our conversations with the uh, the clients there in the last 18 months, there's been three incidents where, you know, there's been some type of fraud, usually not a large, well, actually, none of them were a large dollar amount, but in each case, disciplinary action had to take place. So there's that side where people purposely rip you off. The other part of it is just errors getting into the system. So internal controls are not just there to make sure that we don't um, allow somebody to abscond with our money. They're also there to catch errors, innocent errors, usually. Uh, in the system. Yeah, absolutely. I think errors can be a, sometimes even more prevalent than fraud, yeah. right? Especially in a uh, smaller center setting, right? Like, you know, generally everybody knows each other. These aren't like, you know, very large organizations where you have folks that maybe intentionally or maybe just don't have the right uh, area of focus and they're they're intentionally trying to rip somebody off, right? But right. In, in, in a smaller setting, it's generally just an error. And that error can stem from you know, maybe the pricing didn't get updated when a PO was submitted, or maybe the pricing that uh, list that somebody when they called in an order had a different price than what the vendor had, you know, whatever it might be, those can all flow, flow through all the way through sending off that that payment and sending off that check unless somebody has a way and sort of a, a break point, right at every kind of step of the process to say, is this right? You know, if it's not right, well, return to sender, go back and go, go fix it, uh, rather than just continue on the same workflow. Because you could very easily see it as smaller, um, a smaller center where you know, an invoice comes in and you just write a check and you pay it. And you could do that for six months, years, years and years. And one day I say, wait a second, this price is wrong. And it's been right. wrong for five years. And at that point- That, uh, that product. Right, right. And, you know, at that point, you know, you you didn't really have much of a preventative control in place to catch it. Um, you didn't have sort of a timely detective control, right? Because you were looking at yeah. it five years later. But there are just ways to to kind of think through the different, you know, kind of breakpoints, if you will, along a process to figure out how can I check and just ensure before going to step two, before step three, that um, that everything looks correct here. Yeah. And again, some of these can be very innocent. I mean, even my own billing system for my clients, we had a situation uh, uh, last month where uh, one of our clients was sent uh, two bills the same month. You know, one was the beginning of the month, one was toward the end of the month. And uh, the client, uh, bless their heart, and I don't mean that from the Southern standpoint, I mean, they were very nice and they paid both of them. 
And then I came back and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you overpaid me here. And that's my mistake. You know, we just credit it to the next thing. But if if I hadn't been watching it, you know, it might have taken a little bit of time for them to catch it, too. So that brings us to the ramifications. You know, what are the ultimate ramifications of these of these errors or the fraudulent activity? And, and do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I think without having the controls in place, you know, fraud can occur from you know many different standpoints, right? Somebody could be ripping you off. They could be you know taking product and it's not being used in the center, or it could be you know used for for personal you know use somewhere else. Um, and then there's also just dollars that are leaving, right? There's dollars yeah. that are leaving the center that uh, are paid to a vendor and maybe the vendor doesn't even know that something's wrong, right? Like there, there's just so many ways and areas for sort of fraud and abuse. It could be at every individual level across that process. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's sort of challenging to say, you know, here are the only two or three things that happened. It, it could be anything. And you yeah. don't really know until you know, and it's too late. But by really focusing on the controls, um, you're going to mitigate your risk and you're going to mitigate the the chances of having money leave your your bank account without you knowing or or understanding if it's correct. Right. And, and that's the point we're trying to make here is that you need internal controls to assure. Because one thing is for sure, errors are going to occur they're rarely in your favor. <laughs> I don't know why right. that happens. They're rarely in your favor, and uh, and it's one thing when you're making a lot of money, but um, and and you don't care so much about that. I don't know that. I mean, as accountants, you and I probably have a real aversion to that. Uh, but but you know, doctors when they're making a lot of money, they don't uh, think so much about that until their check starts getting smaller. And then they start asking those questions. So um, and we encourage everybody to make sure you have some of the most basic internal controls, like we've what we've been talking about here. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, especially for a you know a physician who's seeing their bank account and they just you know monitor. They think of that as their control, right? They say, yeah. "Well, you know, every at the end of every month, does it have the amount of money I think it should have?" Right. Okay, then probably okay. But to your point, over time, it can be little, it can be dribs and drabs that just yeah. kind of slowly change that number where you might not notice it right away. Um, but there could be, you know, things happening over time that could just continue on unless you go and correct them. Now, the question is, who who's responsible for maintaining these controls? You know, what uh, what individuals within the organization are or outside the organization uh, can be brought to bear. And again, we're, before we start getting into technology, let's just talk about where we are right now with the human element being involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, internal controls, I think will the person ultimately responsible is going to be different depending on the size of the organization. Yeah. Uh, however, I always feel like internal controls are actually the responsibility of anybody who is like, part of the process or part of the transaction. And the reason for that is everybody, there should be, you know, kind of separate approvers, right? The same person who is entering an invoice, for example, shouldn't necessarily be the same person who's paying that invoice. And you right. uh, an additional control there, and, you know, in our accounting world, right? That's that's your separation of duties, right? But you you have different folks focused on different things. But I think that, you know, ultimately it's it's everyone's responsibility to ensure that, you know, once a control is put in place that it's being followed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and ultimately whoever is looking at the bank account, they're the one I think it's generally going to be ultimately responsible. Um, however, they sort of need to put the control and the process in place to sort of empower the individuals who are working throughout the day or working through a transaction to, to be responsible for it. 
And we also have to be careful about collusion. Uh, you know, so the more people that are involved in the process, the better, uh, or as part of that control, the better. And also be very careful about uh, collusion, you know, either people that are friends that decide to collude. Again, now we're talking about fraud. Uh, or, uh, you know, one of my uh, ongoing issues with a lot of our centers is that, you know, there's a lot of nepotism. In, in, in fact, our company has uh, got a lot of nepotism because we we have so many family members working for it. But when it's when you're dealing with internal controls, you got to be very careful about relationships there to make sure that anybody that's involved in that transaction is not, you know, related in some way or super good friends. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, again, having like a clear understanding of these of the different types of controls and where you can implement the controls can be helpful. And, you know, even at a smaller center, you're not going to have five people who are going to touch a transaction right now in an ideal world. Maybe you do have many handoffs along the way so that, it, you know, a transaction can kind of hit all those different breakpoints, get certain approvals from people that don't work together. Right. But uh, at the end of the day, you often have one person who's paying your bills, right? And yeah. um, you just need to have uh, put in as many controls and, and breakpoints as you can uh, around the frame, you know, the individuals you have working at your center. And you can outsource some of the controls. You know, if uh, if you have an accounting firm that works with you, well, everybody probably has an accounting firm that works with them, uh, but you can use the accounting firm, for example, to do your bank reconciliation as one step of the process or, or even hire somebody to come in periodically to... Uh, you know, to assist, assist in the transaction cycles. But that becomes, you know, kind of an expensive option for them. The more more duties you give to an outside firm, the less money you have available, uh, you know, less profit that you have. So, uh, which, which leads us to the next conversation, which is how can technology help us? So why don't we, why don't we start talking about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just, just broadly, I think, you know, uh, technology is meant to, to do these sort of tasks, right? Like when I think of why computers you know, were, were initially built, they were meant to kind of take the manual tasks and and, and sort of these, these um, you know, monotonous sort of processes and be able to just offload them to a machine, right? And let the machine do them. And I think a lot of what, you know, technology can do in this world is, is sort of exactly that. It's sort of like, let the computers talk to each other to go, you know, ensure that you have the right pricing, you have the right quantities ordered, you know, or you have the right, um, you know, you actually receive them and somebody can kind of confirm that back to the computer, right? Like, rather than, you know, having somebody make a phone call every time they want to place an order, right? Like, it, you can have the, the, the computers can do all of this stuff between each other. And so that's how I think of where technology can play the biggest role. And I always think of healthcare broadly has just been ripe for, you know, technology to start playing a bigger role. Healthcare systems are generally disconnected, right? The systems are, are not fully integrated. Yeah. Um, there's not a whole lot of sort of embedded, uh, you know, different types of technology that are kind of uh, holistic solutions out there. And so you often have things where you're you're placing a purchase order in one system or you're placing it by phone or you're using another system to track your expenses. And then there's another system for making the payment to the vendor. And then there's even another system where you're recording everything in your general ledger for your, your accounting purposes. And just that lack of integration uh, causes all sorts of pain to just maintain effective internal controls. Um, and so by finding ways to bring the technology together for sort of an end-to-end -end solution, which is, you know, part of the reasons why I joined Trivalence is I think it's, you know, really focused on uh, the ASC operator and 
in just ensuring that we can get from point A to point B through the entire process without having to worry about, you know, what's in between and, you know, making sure that um, there's a controlled environment in between. Yeah. And, and to your point, we have so many separated systems, you know, we might be using QuickBooks, for example, to manage our accounting and, and check writing. We might be using SIS, one of our other sponsors, uh, you know, for handling your accounts receivable uh, function and maybe the purchaser uh, function. Um, and then you've got human beings involved, you know, who are, oh, and then you have an ordering system that you're, you've set up, you know, to do online, you might be using the inter- internet for all that. A lot of your invoices might come back, you know, by email, but none of those things are, are necessarily connected right now. And a lot of it is because our industry is like a very small compared to all the big, big guys out there. Hospitals have like very complex computer systems that can handle all that, but I don't know of a, I don't know of a computer system that can handle, you know, billing, check writing, general ledger, you know, accounts receivable, all, all of those other functions that you really need in order to run a place, uh, or at least one that's affordable. Let's put it that way. Right. Yes, you could probably build your own, but um, it would be pretty expensive. And and yeah. typically, what you see, and and this is not too dissimilar with with other industries, is you end up sort of uh, taking vertically focused different you know software solutions. And saying, okay, well, this one's good for billing, and you know, yeah. this one's good for accounts payable, and this one's good for scheduling, and you kind of try to link them all together. But and sometimes there there is enough of an integration that they work, and then uh, other times you're left with you know taking one thing from system A and somebody's manually entering it into system B, and you know, on it goes, and it's just not ideal. And I think you know, there's um, the, you know, healthcare overall is just sort of ripe for, uh, you know, more technology uh, infusion there. Well, and and our, let's face it, um, since not a lot of doctors listen to the podcast, often our doctors are, shall we say, uh, not, not inclined to spend a lot of money um, <laughs> on different systems. Uh, and they might be looking for the cheapest solution in a number of different areas without as you were saying, without even thinking about that integration that might be available. Uh, and, and not yeah. just, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of our our administrators and and business office managers might not have, you know, the uh, level of uh, computer knowledge to be able to figure out uh, or be able to identify solutions that would be uh, fully integrated. We don't find a lot of CPAs, for example, running the business office, um, you know, or, or people that have a, you know, very intense or, or, or a, extreme level of knowledge about this, like you would find in a larger company that has those strong controls. Yeah, completely agree. And I think since you brought it up, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right there. I think um, what I've seen is like one of the biggest surprises to me is just how adverse to ex- you know, adopting new technology or even yeah. just slow right. to adopt new technology um, exists kind of in, in the industry. And, you know, no one wants to be the early adopter, right? No one wants to take the chance on bringing in a new technology and, um, until they see their peers doing it. Right. And, you know, and even then it's like, well, what does it cost me? And like, how do, how do I understand my ROI and my savings? And, you know, it's often not just a pure dollars and cents ROI, right? Like some of it is internal controls related and it's going to help you prevent future, um, uh, future fraud or future errors. Uh, and then some of it is manual work, right? Like the things where, you know, maybe it saves your administrator a couple hours a day, a couple hours a week. To have a technology system do something and 
that's time they get back to focus on patient care. And those are the things that are really hard to quantify, which I think, you know, in our in the industry kind of makes it harder for folks to just dive right in and be that early adopter. And, you know, by, myself coming from more of the technology world is I always looked at this as like, if I don't look at the new technologies, I'm losing some sort of competitive advantage, right? Like, you know, uh, you know, I've been building accounting and, and finance groups in the past and what it, it's almost common for me to go take those risks and go look for those those new products because I can build my teams. I can build out the organization with fewer people, right? Um, and can rely on the technology and the tools that are available to do this sort of heavy lifting, if you will, right? You know, again, back to our uh, my point earlier around why we invented computers and why they're here, right? They're they're meant to do the heavy lifting. You know, we have snowblowers uh, instead of shovels, right? Like there, there's reasons for these things and um, we got to take advantage of them whenever we can. Absolutely. So what, what, how do you think, uh, I, I guess this is a two point question. How, how can we uh, maximize the use of technology today? What tools are out there today? And of course, you know, you have one of them uh, acknowledging that, uh, but also, you know, just talk a little bit about the current state there. And then we'll talk a little bit about where we might be heading in the future. Yeah. Maybe I'm a little biased here uh, for, for trivalence, but you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why, why I joined the team, right? I think there's, um, there's a lot of folks out there who are still using pen and paper for, for uh, the entire expense management and just payables process. And from my perspective, that's the easiest place to go replace. Um, you know, if you're, you're on pen and paper, like there are technologies that can do at least one of the processes along the way from placing that initial order. And when I say pen and paper, that can involve making a phone call, sending an email, all of those are sort of the very manual sort of ways to go, uh, you know, place an order, if you will. And um, I think there's just, you know, many different technologies along the way. Trivalence happens to do kind of the full suite of, you know, actually placing that initial order all the way through getting that vendor paid. But, you know, these types of technologies exist in our personal lives and, you know, they're, they exist in the business world. We're just not always uh, as, um, as quick to jump on them and, and quick to use them, but they exist and they're there. And um, there's many opportunities, I think, to, to gain efficiency uh, and different levels of control. And, and one of the bigger aspects I always think of too is visibility, right? When you have sort of a um, a controlled environment or a place where you have one vendor, one solution kind of you know solving a problem or solving a process for you, you get visibility into your business you know, a little deeper than you would if you just have paper invoices sitting on the desk and a stack of checks sitting there that eventually maybe get entered into QuickBooks or, um, you know, you just get like a different level of visibility into your, into your operations. And Alec, in our own personal lives, think about this. First of all, I'm trying to break my habit of ordering everything in my life from uh, Amazon uh, because I really don't feel like I need to make that guy any richer. Uh, but you know, Amazon is uh, is uh, is a simple solution. It it has revolutionized the way we buy products. Uh, it's revolutionized the way we pay for it, receive it. Um, you know, track it even um, is is amazing. You know, I mean, we we get uh, it seems to me four to five deliveries a day from Amazon, and at any given time we can pull up on the computer to find out what's coming in, make sure it was paid, make sure that we ordered it, um, and that make sure that we you know obviously paid the amount that we thought we were going to pay for it. Uh, why wouldn't we expect that in our business too? If if we wouldn't think about anything else uh, in our own personal life, as much as we hate making the guy any richer, 
Um, you know, why wouldn't we look for that in business? And when I think about your product, like Trivalence, I, I've always referred to it as the Amazon of the, uh, the healthcare world. That's not fair because you're, you're, it's actually much more advanced than that. But if, if you want to try to explain to somebody how it works and how it fits into something that, you know, we're used to and expect in our own daily lives, that's the way I look at that. Where do you think uh, this is going? First of all, you don't have a lot of competition right now. Where do you think the market is going? You're going to have to kind of admit <laughs> at least where where the market is going here. You know, I think where the market is going is is slowly but surely adopting more new and uh, more robust technologies, right? Yeah. And I think trivalence is coming along at a time where, you know, you do have other other solutions out there that do portions of the entire procurement through payment, um, you know, process. But not many, or if any, I don't think there's any that are doing the full process from beginning to end. And, you know, when I think of the, the biggest value add of something like this is you have if you, you have added efficiency, you have improved accuracy, and then you have enhanced visibility. Um, and so by bringing kind of the entire process together in one platform, to your point, like an Amazon, you get all of that. You get your efficiency, you get your accuracy and your visibility into how your business is operating. Um, so I think that's where I think the, the future is going, right? Like this has happened across many different, uh, you know, um, business, you know, different sectors and different markets across, across the board, um, just in terms of adoption of technology and um, how things have moved. Like, you know, I always think of restaurants because, uh, you know, where a prior employer of mine, but, you know, for the longest time, it was all pen and paper, right? You wrote down something and, and now it's, you know, sometimes there's kiosks and the, the, the customer walks right in and they, they place their own order, goes right back to the kitchen. Uh, you, can, you have all these different channels to go uh, work through the process. And I think over time, you know, the industry um, will get to something like that. It's just we're in the very early stages of it. Uh, adoption is very slow and, um, you know, we'll start to see some traction with uh, uh, with newer types of technology coming out as well. And one thing, so a couple uh, warnings that I think we need to make sure our listeners hear is be very careful about a um, a single vendor solution. There's a lot of vendors out there, distributors out there that would like you to use their product and they build into it some of the same, you know, it's kind of like Amazon was in the beginning. You know, when Amazon first came out, they sold their products through their warehouses. You know, they they were the sole source and, and um, you know, course they're you know you have to be careful about the price that you're paying for it uh I, and i i'm sorry alex i hate to keep bringing amazon up but it's something like all of us know about but now you can go on their you know the portal and buy from you know multiple different vendors you can look up different prices which is the the value here but i i know that there's a lot of uh vendors out there right now uh, you know, distributors out there right now, even manufacturers that are encouraging people to use their kind of proprietary uh, website, which you got to be careful about getting too, uh, or a purchasing system, get too tied into it uh, because you might not, you know, they might not be able to supply everything or you might not be able to double check, make sure you're getting the first, the best price, or people might get lazy. Oh, I'll just go online and do this without doing that double check that they need to make in order to make sure they're getting the best product, the best price and the best delivery terms. Yeah, and I think um, you know, there's definitely a challenge with it, having a single vendor for everything. Um, you know, I think you know what what is always important is to have your backups, right? I think you know I'm sure folks during COVID and some real you know hard supply chain issues um, were you know 
looking for multiple vendors and looking for different resources, but by, you know, a concentration into just one can, can cause you problems when you have, you know, something that comes up, whether it's a internal issue uh, at an individual center or more of a macro issue. I think um, the concentration risk is too great. You kind of always want to be able to uh, understand what other vendors are doing and to your point, making sure you're getting the, the best price almost to keep everyone honest, right? Like if you just were buying from the same vendor for years and years and years, have you ever talked to, you know, vendor B, right? You know, maybe they're able to do something a little bit more competitive on, on pricing because pricing changes over time, right? And, um, you know, maybe they can help, maybe they can't, but I think it's worth, you know, keeping that sort of um, check and balance in place. Well, and to that point, we got to be very careful about our purchasers. They're overwhelmed. You know, their job is, uh, you know, they they got the nurses yelling at them to get the product in, you know, in five minutes. And, uh, you know, they're trying to find the best price. They're trying to, you know, manage the whole department, make sure that they don't run out of inventory items, count their inventory items. You know, often they're a one-stop shop. You know, they, they, they order, they receive, sometimes even are part of the payment process there uh, in some way. And, and, uh, and, and, and which means that they're not always double checking and make sure they're getting the best product or the best price, you know, for that matter. It's e- easy to just say, well, I keep buying them. You know, by the way, he always gives me the best price without actually going out and double checking to make sure that is the case. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the the amount of work administrators do is just, uh, it's, it's a ton of work, right? And, and I think it's impossible to think that no one's ever going to make an error, right? Or, or ever going to you know, uh, you know, have any sort of uh, accidental error that happens. And I think by putting in technology, you can save some of their time where they get that time back, you know, look at these sorts of things and, and make sure that holistically we're making the right decisions and, you know, making the right purchases at the right times. But, um, and a lot of times they can get bogged down with paperwork. They're, they have a stack of invoices that need to get off to their accountant or somebody to, to make, to cut payments or cut checks. You know, they're working through that instead of, focusing on, hmm, am I getting the best price? Should I talk to some different vendors? Do I, am I thinking about how fast I'm getting the product or, you know, embracing the technology allows, you know, frees up that time to, to really focus on at a higher level. So let's, uh, let's just summarize with some takeaways. I'll, I'll throw mine in first um, and then you can correct me afterwards or just add on to that. How's that? Yes. One big takeaway is make sure you have internal controls in your organization. Make sure that you know, you have purchase orders, even small organizations, you know, have have some system to control the purchasing, you know, make sure that you have a control that that uh, somebody's double checking when they get an invoice that you actually receive the product and order the product and that you got the same price. Number two, uh, you know, make sure that that those controls involve individuals that have you know that you have a separation of uh, of those duties as much as possible. And if you can't, then you might want to consider outsourcing it, at least in the interim. Uh, three is look for technology, as you've talked about, and we've both talked about, you know, to try to find those solutions and keep an eye on current systems, you know, like, uh, you know, the computer systems, both HST and SIS do have built in portals. Uh, they're not the most robust systems necessarily, uh, because they, they are somewhat limited right now because the technology is just, you know, really kind of developing at this point. Um, you know, be very leery of single source systems out there, you know, when you're only buying from one distributor, for example, uh, keep an eye out for new technology, 
uh, such as the Trivalence product. See if that can at least, uh, you're not, you, you know, the product isn't totally integrated with everything yet, but I know you're working on that integration with, you know, uh, the accounting systems and the billing systems, you know, the purchase or the, uh, like the purchase order systems too. Um, so I, I know that's coming down the pike. What do you want to add to that? You know, the, the only thing I'd add is just think about where you can adopt technology. Adopting technology, I think of kind of as the three, uh, the three big points are efficiency, right? It's going to help you automate tasks and processes. It's going to free up employee time to focus more on strategic type work. Um, you're going to have improved accuracy. So yeah. your technology can help reduce all that human error, uh, lead to more accurate financial reporting, fewer opportunities for fraud, fewer opportunities for errors. And then the, the the big thing that I really like is it gives you visibility, right? And it gives you um, greater visibility just into your financial transactions and your spending habits and patterns. And that can cycle through our internal controls conversation in the sense that it might make it easier to identify suspicious activity. So yeah. I think, you know, focusing on the technology can can solve a lot of your internal control uh, problems. And, and watch for trends too. As you said, the more information you have, Coming off of these computer systems that you don't have to manually collect uh, is going to provide you a real insight as to how much it's costing. And we we need data like that. You know, how much is it costing us to do certain cases, you know, and the more data that you can get for, off of a computer system that you can then manipulate to be able to turn into actionable data, the better that you're going to be. So, Alex, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully this has been uh, great information, and actionable information for our listeners. And I hope to talk to you again soon. You as well. Thanks, John. It's great meeting you. Thanks. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So the Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual education conference and exhibition is September 19th and the 20th at the Hilton Polaris in Columbus, Ohio, and we will have a special episode including interviews with some of the speakers. The Idaho Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference is September 21st and 22nd at the Hilton Garden Inn, Boise, downtown. The Indiana Federation of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Fall Conference and Trade Show is September 28th and 29th at the French Lick Springs Hotel in French Lick, Indiana. And the New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers 2023 Annual Conference will be held October 4th through the 6th, 2023 at the Desmond Hotel in Albany, New York. John will be speaking and moderating some sessions and we're, we'll have a special episode with interviews and the whole pile of us will yeah, be Yeah, I think there's going to be 12 of us there. And if you're a New York State client of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, we have a, uh, a special meeting of our New York State clients uh, on the 4th from 10 to 12. Uh, make sure you sign up if you're one of our clients. And then in the afternoon, we have a pre-conference that we're sponsoring also. So it's going to be a busy conference. We're going to have a lot, uh, a, a lot of, of things to be doing there while uh, those 12 employees are going to be very busy for those uh, three days there. And that pre-conference is for anybody who's... Uh, Going uh, to the conference. Right. And there's no uh, no additional charge. So if mm -hmm. you're going to the New York State Conference, um, you just sign up for that. And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 9th and 10th, 2023 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. And I'll be speaking there and we hope to have a special episode with interviews this year. We'd, uh, we, we were there last year and we talked about that possibility and we're certainly working toward that.
This is kind of early notice, but ASCA's 2024 conference will be at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida on April 17th through the 20th, 2024. And I'm uh, going to be doing a session on, uh, it's going to be an interesting, I've never done this before, on uh, doing financial projections. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's not something we talk about a lot, so I'm kind of excited about to hear what I'm going to talk about uh, <laughs> while I'm there. And of course, we'll have our crowd there and we'll be doing at least two special episodes. I think we've been up to three now, some of our uh, trips down there, and we have so much fun when we're there. So uh, we're looking forward to it. And don't forget some of our upcoming boot camps. The October cohort of the ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp is October 31st through November 3rd, and you can get more information at ASCPodcast.com. And the January 2024 cohort of the ASC Administrators Boot Camp is January 23 to 26, 2024. And remember, all of these signups are available on ASCPodcast.com or our new website at ASCCentral.com, as well as the on-demand versions. That's right. And ASC Central is spelled ASC-Central.com. And also, don't forget about our recorded events, all available also on ASCPodcast.com, our credentialing conference, which we recorded in 2020, the Fall 2022 Finance and Accounting Conference, the Conditions for Coverage Conference, which was recorded in 2021, and our Medical Director Conference recorded in 2021. All of those are, are very, even though they're two or three years old, you know, there isn't a lot of changes with those particular regulations mm-hmm. and, and that material. So those are very popular uh, conferences, pre-recorded conferences. And you might also be interested in our June 2023 on-demand version of the multi-state conference, which is eligible for 16 AEUs and four IPCH credits. And the conference includes some great sessions on infection control, life safety, survey preparation, human resources, uh, an introduction to the Medicare ASC payment system and pharmacy, as well as staff retention. Uh, So as you're getting closer to the end of the year, if you're CAS certified or Mm -hmm. you're um, uh, CAPE certified and you find yourself short on, on uh, credits, uh, this is a relatively inexpensive way to get that, uh, those credits as well as a lot of great information. Yeah. And we also want to remind our listeners to become a patron member of the program, which is also known as ASC Central. It's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some virtual conferences, links, uh, policies and procedures, forms, and fire and disaster drills. Membership helps to defray the costs of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, please visit asc-central.com. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. If you found this episode informative, we encourage you to to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We would love any feedback about our episode or ideas for future episodes by sending us an email at comments at ASCPodcast.com. And we want to give a special thank you to our great team here who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor is Susan Cronkite, executive producer John Gailey, and our dedicated research team of Jenna Alvarez, Judith D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Jim Masters, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, and Christina Norman. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.
This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. For more information about Trivalence, visit their website at trivalence.com. That's T-R-I-V-A-L-E-N-C-E.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.